Hi, everybody. This is Alex Romanovich, and today we have a wonderful, wonderful guest. It is June 11, 2020, and we're with Audra Shalal. I will tell you a little bit more about her. Welcome, Audra. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here, Alex. Audra is uh, connecting with us from Paris. Audra is an American-born, uh, living in Paris, actually living all over the world, and she'll tell us more about this. Um, she is a former professional ballet dancer with Boston Ballet and a few other companies. She is also a semi-professional equestrian enthusiast. She loves to ride horses and does it for competition. She is a fencer. She loves fencing. Not only she is fencing, but she's also uh, fencing with her own family, and her kids are into fencing sport. And interestingly enough, with everything else that I just mentioned, she runs her own entrepreneurial company called Boss Consulting out of Paris and works with a number of institutions, governments, startups, scale-ups, and large enterprise companies. Welcome, Audra. Thank you. Um, there's just so much, you know, you and I spoke at so many different events and we've, uh, we had conversations over phone and over Zoom and so forth. They just, and you struck me as such an interesting person. I would love to expose all of that and have our audience enjoy this story. So first, let's begin from the very inception of this, right? Professional ballet dancer. Wow. I mean, that's pretty impressive right there. So tell us more about this. Why ballet? Why professional ballet dancing? How did you end up being an American professional ballet dancer and how that progressed into other things that you're doing right now? Yes, actually, I had started when I was three years old in, in ballet. And, uh, and because I had been, I had become pretty serious about the, the discipline, I was accepted to the Walnut Hill School of the Performing Arts dancing in Boston. And we were allowed to dance with the Boston Ballet, having a certain level at the same time. I was happy because with my father being a cardiovascular thoracic surgeon, my mother a microbiologist, a ballerina in the family was not exactly expected for a career. Uh, so I was happy that they allowed me to go to the performing arts school because it was college preparatory with uh, professors coming from Tufts and Harvard uh, teaching on the faculty. And so they were happy with uh, the academic part. And at the same time, I could dance. So I, was, I had three professional ballet coaches, uh, one from Romania, Jacob Lasco, who was very well known and uh, who had actually left Romania because of his uh, creative arts and uh, promoting ballet to come to the States in Michigan. And also with the New York City ballet dancer, uh, Karina Brock who was a principal ballet dancer, who was my coach too, and Olga Lepeshinskaya from the Bolshoi Ballet, who was training me too. So I had three different styles, also from Russian, American, Romanian, that I developed my own style. And so I was dancing intensively in different uh, ballet uh, um, companies and trainings and the Grand Ballet Canadian in Montreal and the Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet um, in Pennsylvania and, uh, and studying abroad. So that's what brought me to Paris was I was dancing with a ballet company, the Jeune Ballet de France, in the south of France. And, uh, and that's what uh, led me to France. Uh, but due to a recurrent uh, tendonitis in my hips, I had to kind of consider the, reconsider the career. And uh, just staying in the ballet world and also just being a professional ballet teacher. It was a bit too early because I, I had stopped early, so I wasn't ready to just start teaching. And uh, I was very interested in international affairs. Uh, also uh, followed a lot with my father on the, on the medical side. Always interested with his research. Um, he had done a lot of research with the, invented the concept of the pacemaker for Metatronics at the time. So I was always very interested in the type of research he was doing too. And I decided that it was the time to pivot. And if I was going to change careers uh, and go to the university, uh, this, I was at an age where there wasn't such a big gap yet. So it was either do it now or, or never. So that's where I decided that I wasn't ready to go back to the States yet. I wanted to study in Paris and, uh, and, and decided to continue my studies uh, in um, Paris, France. And because I was in France, 
being an American in Paris, France also is very special in the sense that uh, the, their educational system with the grande coles and, and the way you move in your career in France is uh, done in a very special way. So I had to stay away from the expat bubble and really go s complete streamlined into the French culture and French schools. So I got accepted to École Nationale de pont des which is one of the top three engineering schools in, uh, in France. And uh, so that I got into the whole Grand École system, educational system. And also... What was, your at, what was your major? Yes, I was in international business, international economics. So yes, before pont des actually I was at the American University of Paris because I wasn't sure if I was going to go back to the States. But having done my studies and I had done uh, been working a little bit with UNESCO, that was where I wanted to get my master's and continue on at Pont-de-Chaussée and then later uh, with the DAA, which is like a pre-doctorate uh, at the Sorbonne. What an incredible um, uh, number of events. And uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how those events shaped what you are today. But also, let's talk about, let's not forget about fencing and equestrian, because ballet, equestrian, fencing, global trotting, all of these things, American in Paris, all of these things are obviously making you one of the most interesting global entrepreneurs who is working with startups in Finland and South of France and Africa and Far East and the United States and so forth and so on. So we have so many interesting questions to ask you. Um, let's talk about all of these sports and how they've sort of shaped your, um, you know, what you are today and what you're doing today as well. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, when I, when I had mentioned to you about having uh, finished my ballet career, uh, that kind of came to a quick stop because the tendonitis. Actually, I had eight years where uh, I hadn't really found a sport or something that I was completely passionate about the way I was with ballet. And so when my children had started uh, three years ago, the, uh, well, now four years, uh, four years ago, the horseback riding and fencing, I thought, why don't I do an activity with them? That way I can uh, share uh, some special moments with them too. And, uh, and that's when I took up the horse riding and the fencing. And what I loved about the two sports uh, was that there is no age limit. And so uh, me in my mid-40s, uh, seeing that uh, actually uh, I could do two sports and actually even compete in them and actually also have goals and objectives where if I want to go to the regional champions, world champions, or even if I decided one day, hey, maybe I could try for the Olympics, I know that there's nothing stopping me. And I love that. I love that for the fact that uh, sometimes we reach a certain age where we think that, okay, now we have a family. Um, I picked my career. So uh, my dreams are now rather over. And uh, now it's now I have to, now it's with, with the children and et cetera. And sometimes it leaves a little bit of an emptiness in some, in some people. And the thing is that uh, I like to show people too, you know, through my love of sports and what I've achieved is that uh, there is uh, no age limit. And if you're motivated, if you're really motivated to want something, you can achieve it. And I've had some pretty high and low times, you know, uh, where there were maybe two, twice I wanted to take my foil, the, the fleuret, and throw it away and say, I was so frustrated. I felt like I wasn't getting to where I wanted to go and uh, where I almost quit. And I'm not somebody who quits, but actually because I'm not someone who quits, I still kind of stuck with it, but uh, actually uh, going through it made me realize that where there was a moment that I had a, a low moment was that um, going through it is that I realized that it is true that if you're motivated enough, you can't, and you have to, and it's true that yes, you have to feel fast, feel early, feel forward, but um, if you really want it, you can't achieve it. And so with the, those two sports, with the horse riding, when I moved into horse show jumping, uh, I like the fact that, uh, uh, as I said, no, uh, there's no age limit. You can compete with even, you know, the young 20-year-olds. 
And I never liked to compete. I need I needed to put myself uh, in a uh, in a position where that you know it is possible that you're going to fail, that you're going to fall, that you're not going to make it first. Uh, but uh, you need to move out of your comfort zone. And in order in order for me to evolve and to evolve in my professional career, and uh, and also as we'll speak later about uh, my coaching with entrepreneurs and as an angel investor. Um, etc. is that in order to mentor and coach well, uh, you have to also be able to share your um, highs and lows and experiences. So with the um, horse show riding, it helped me to become a better investor uh, because of the fact that uh, I go more with my intuition. Uh, when the when there's the jumps, knowing am I going to take the risk to make shorter turns where I could, uh, by not staying safe, and just doing all the jumps and doing just a clean performance and knowing that you'll stay in the top 10, top five, uh, will I take the risk of trying for number one and uh, go for the seconds? And also when you're seeing the trainer putting up those bars, okay, uh, if you hesitate, the horse is going to hesitate. So that also showed me that I have to believe in myself, believe in the horse and know that if we're going to jump, we're going to jump. And that uh, also helped me know that uh, when I felt, for example, in investments, that uh, I look at the team, I really like the team, I can see there's a real market opportunity, I see they can execute their milestones, uh, instead of always kind of being a bit skeptical and thinking, well, yes, there's this, you know, there's X, Y, and Z, but I still feel there's this and this missing and hesitating. If I have that intuition, this is a good team, I can see them executing, there's good market opportunity, I see the innovation, I'm quicker to invest. And um, the, the fencing taught me more patience and strategy because uh, when I do uh, want to reach specific objectives and goals, uh, sometimes I don't have the patience. I want it. I want it now. <laughs> but uh, so that taught me also that uh, when you're ready to attack, oh, sometimes you have to be patient, wait, not to precipitate. A lot of the times I'd get the touches rather quickly because I wasn't patient to wait enough <laughs> at the right moment. So it was teaching me that, that also, you know, on the strategy side. And, um, and so uh, those were the different skills that um, also taught me in uh, fencing. Plus fencing is very concentrated, very physical. You know, some people may think going down the strip back and forth is not so physical, but uh, very, uh, takes a lot of physical endurance and, um, and, uh, and concentration. But um, but with these two sports, the fencing and horseback riding, I put myself in the competitions. And uh, in the beginning, wasn't so easy being the professionist I was. But uh, I did actually attain um, two bronze medals uh, this past year in my first uh, national French competition, where I wasn't sure that I'd be able to do it. But uh, I got a good coach that uh, was also helping me also with the mindset. And believing in myself and uh, that, uh, okay, maybe you won't be number one, maybe you'll end up last, but it's good to, you know, dip your feet in. And so I didn't think that for my first comp national French competition that I would have had the bronze medal. And, uh, and the same with the horse riding. I've had uh, like uh, four or five bronze. And uh, I had my first gold medal in the horse show jumping. The first, because I did take that uh, risk of uh, going faster. And uh, I figured I was with the horse that I loved and I felt great with it. So do I want to stay cozy and just uh, stay on the podium knowing I could pretty much get the first to third place? Or do I want to completely risk it and really try for the first? Because trying for the first is not that easy. And uh, when it comes to seconds, but uh, so that was a big one for me. And, uh, and as I was saying, also for my children, there were maybe two times that I thought I would uh, uh, actually one of my first competitions, the horse uh, got frightened. And before I started and he and he galloped all the way to the other side of the of the of the, you know, corral. And uh, and I thought that I completely ruined the competition. Because I, it was my first, so I didn't realize that the competition doesn't start until after the bell. But since it was a hunter competition, which is kind of a mixture of dressage and horse show jumping, I thought because I didn't start my circle before I started the, the jumps that it was over. And when that horse ran off like that, 
besides it frightening me too, I thought, okay, well, forget it. It's over. I messed up. So why even do it? And which is usually not my mentality, but I saw all those people in that stadium <laughs> watching me. And, but then I saw my two little children up there on the, up there looking down at me. And I thought, how can I, I'm supposed to be a role model. So how can I tell them that you never give up, that you finish what you started? And, uh, and I, was re- I wasn't finishing what I was started in my mind. And so in that split second, I thought, I, I'm going to have to finish it for the children, whether I like it or not. And uh, so I went ahead through it. And uh, my trainer said, oh, that was great. You know, you did well. And I told him that way. But uh, look what happened. You know, he ran across. Uh, I didn't start properly. He says, no, after the bell. And I ended up getting third place on that, you know, on that competition. And that's when I told the children, I said, see, mama, the perfectionist, you know, was ready to stop. But look, if I had stopped, I would have had that third place. So you can't think that uh, just because it didn't go perfectly the way you wanted it to go, that uh, it means that it could be a disaster after. Actually, you could be surprised. And that's very true. It's very true in business and it's very true with uh, entrepreneurship and uh, entrepreneurs that um, there's nothing perfect about business. I mean, mm-hmm. Think about it, right? And, and that's, that's yes. why, yeah. Go yes, ahead. That's what I was just going to say to you. That's why also why it's so important for me, as we were discussing at one time about, for me, how important sport um, and you know even hobbies that you're passionate about is, is so intertwined with your career and your job and professional life. And that's why keeping that balance, uh, because one plays into the other. So, uh, yeah, uh, I realized how important that was. So, um, you know, the sports you're involved in, they're very physical. They require your presence. Let's talk about COVID and mm-hmm. what that did to your entire routine, if you will but also what that did to your interaction with your startups and your projects and, and so forth. Let's talk about that a little. Yes. Um, actually that was a tough with the total lockdown because in Paris, uh, we were only allowed one hour outside of the house, uh, one kilo, uh, kilo, kilometer away kilometer from the, um, the house and the mayor of Paris was saying that no joggers or anybody sporty can go out and do sports uh, before nine in the morning, and um, uh, and and can uh, until eight at night. So either after eight in the evening or before nine, and uh, that was tough because usually during the day when you need a break from being in front of the screens, all of your webinars and teaching and etc is that uh, there's a moment you need a break and there wasn't that and going from 16 to 18 hours of training to just like five hours a week <laughs> was a big drop in my dopa, dopa, like dopamine and uh, endorphins and uh, so that was a big shock for me too and uh, and that's also where some people feel like how can you do 16 to 18 hours of training where I tell entrepreneurs also why it's important to keep that balance because uh, I, before the, co- the COVID, the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, I was uh, traveling uh, sometimes uh, twice a week uh, to either the Middle East, uh, uh, the Nordics, uh, Africa, and, um, and also with my teaching and consulting. And they don't understand how I can still fit in 16 to 18 hours. But I said that there's early mornings, there's late evenings, uh, there is a way if you want. You have to kind of look at your um, sports or like I say, hobbies, uh, uh, like your work. So when you block it, uh, unless you have something that's extremely important, like a meeting or something, if something happens to, uh, if there's a cocktail that happens to come up, but it's not going to make or break your life, (laughs) um, you stick with what you blocked as if it's work. And, uh, and, and then you will see that uh, you'll be able to get all of that uh, amount of uh, training in. And so with the, the COVID, what it taught was at first I was thinking like, okay, am I going to endure the COVID or am I going to adapt? And um, I didn't want to endure uh, being an entrepreneur and also trying to be a role model for my children and the, and, and the entrepreneurs that I coach. 
And so adapting meant what? And I hate, well, now I like running, but I hated running with a passion. And uh, I never understood why my coach was always saying how running is important for uh, fencing. And uh, I always tried to avoid it. But because I had no choice and I didn't want to lose all of the muscle and all that training I had before, I forced myself to go, jog to go jogging. Also, my child uh, on the autism spectrum, uh, he didn't have a physical uh, therapist anymore. So I had to be, you know, one of his three therapies, therapists. And uh, so I needed to make sure he was going to be jogging too. And, uh, and so that's where I kept up with the, I started the running. And then we built up endurance. And uh, to my surprise is that uh, my fencing trainer now, who uh, recently, you know, seen me as we're slowly coming out of the lockdown, uh, noticed that my footwork was stronger. And here I thought I was losing out on during the lockdown. So uh, by adapting with the, the, the jogging and, and, and staying um, uh, loyal a little bit to, to a certain routine, uh, I was able to <laughs> injure that part and, uh, and make sure that uh, there was still some kind of continuity that was, uh, you know, that hadn't stopped because of it. So I'm going to put you on the, st on the spot now. Uh, you're an American in Paris. You've traveled all over the world. You still continue to communicate with a lot of people worldwide. I don't have to tell you that the entire world is, is watching uh, on top of what's happening with COVID, the entire world is watching what, what's happening in the United States. Tell me about your emotions, your feelings, your, you know, what do you make of, uh, you know, out of all of this? Well, I'll say in the, in the beginning, I was uh, just kind of upset about the fact that I'm someone that uh, actually a lot of uh, entrepreneurs They'll feel very inspired when I'm working with them or my workshops and things. And so I'm a very people person and uh, I need that human connection. And in the beginning, you know, uh, it was very frustrating for me. You know, it almost put me into a depression because seeing people on screens, it wasn't the same for me. I felt this distance. Uh, I like making people, uh, giving energy of uh, making other people happy because when they smile, it makes me smile more. And uh, when I can feel that uh, through my energy, I'm bringing more energy and positive energy to the entrepreneurs I work with or um, other angel investors when going through due diligence, et cetera, is that uh, that part I felt with the, that human touch was gone. And, uh, and even a funny part is during the, remember the lockdown before there was a uh, uh, homeless person uh, that actually had a company before and ended up on the street. Uh, very interesting person, but my children used to bring a breakfast basket every morning when we would pass by. And, uh, and during that time too, because of the COVID, I mean, luckily the, they were able to house some of these homeless, but I didn't realize how even that human contact <laughs> and doing something nice to make someone else smile, uh, you know, just brings that energy. So the, during this, um, the different way of working with people, the, the, um, where I'm just so much more on the human contact and on the, and on the screens was that, uh, in the beginning, I really almost wanted to push it aside, you know, just feeling like nothing can replace that. And, but I realized too, that again, you're going to have to adapt. So how can you still so, for example, when teaching, because I also teach uh, at the different Grande Coles universities uh, in France and abroad, uh, I manage entrepreneurship programs where I put in like four-month programs uh, of going through the innovation phase, marketing, financial phase. I bring uh, angel investors to uh, challenge them at the end of the, the program uh, to see who they feel is investable and to continue their projects. And so while doing these kind of webinars, I was telling some of the directors of these schools that five-hour webinars of just giving kind of like lectures, I said, uh, it's not going to happen on screen. <laughs> it's not the same kind of human interaction. So I said I preferred that since these are entrepreneurs and it's on entrepreneurship, that I would take these students, uh, even though it actually gave, made it more 
time consuming for me. But for me, just seeing how I was able to motivate the, them and also during their time where they feel isolated was giving them hope that, uh, that you know, you should still continue working on your company, that, you know, there's still hope <laughs> that uh, things uh, just need to adapt, is that um, I started doing one-on-one um, coaching with them and, and teaching individually so that uh, they had at least 30, 35 minutes with me, each student. Uh, to work on their projects more personally. So they were happy because you would take the two hours of giving them all the pedagogical, all the methods, et cetera, but then they had their, you know, 30 to 40 minutes with me um, to go more um, personally and personalized on their thing. So there was a different way of doing that. Also, like with the the American Chamber of uh, Commerce in France, is that um, I'm on the chair of the uh, mentoring task force and the pitch for growth. Uh, It was part of the Women Leadership Committee at first. And uh, I had uh, launched these two programs in the mentoring and the pitch for growth. And because of this, uh, four years ago, and because of this uh, COVID also, many uh, participants were thinking, oh, okay, this mentorship program, fine, we can still see our mentor or mentee by online but there wasn't the community. So how do you maintain a community of all of these participants in this mentoring program and uh, to ensure that everybody's still happy and feeling connected? And so I launched a new series called the um, All Aboard the Mentorship uh, series where there were different types of webinars on different themes in order to let participants know that you know, they have these webinars and accompaniments uh, that they can follow. And also, which actually next week uh, is also in parallel, another series called Around the Living Room Talks, where uh, the theme is under Pitch and Connect. So how can we improve our pitches and have 60 seconds to impact? Um, And putting them in breakout rooms where they can exchange and connect. So... Uh, on, so on one side, the webinars, you know, for more capacity building. And then on the other side, the other webinar around the living room talks to have more interaction and breakout rooms to be able to do things around the, for example, uh, refining your pitching, uh, in smaller groups and getting to know each other and, and being able to share their special spark with, from within. So that was also something that originated from the, the COVID. Uh, also, I think what was interesting, too, was I'm very involved with the European Commission. And I'm on the expert jury for the um, European um, Investment Fund. And uh, there was uh, a jury deliberation that we had in um, May. Um, it was a 350 uh, million euro fund for the best uh, companies that need to scale up in Europe. And in February, you see, we had this uh, in Brussels where we meet the jury. And actually, there's like 10 jury panels. And so after the whole day yeah. Yeah, of jury deliberations, uh, there was uh, networking amongst all the other jury panels. So you're meeting other experts coming from different countries and things, which uh, made it very interesting all around that. You see there was that human contact, the um, bring, uh, bring everyone together from different countries. And, uh, and they did a nice kind of networking around the job. And, um, but with the pandemic, the, it was the first time they did it remotely. And that was quite a challenge in the sense that it was great that it was still continuing. Uh, and, but what was interesting was that uh, we're doing it on WebEx. And in the beginning, it was interesting kind of how the jury, compared to being on a jury deliberation in person and hearing pitches in person, how different it, it was. Because, again, there's not that human connection. So there was in the beginning, not very much debate as it was in Brussels where people could get heated about uh, which project they felt really should be invested in or not and going through it, you know, to, for the majority vote. So even if you had two that weren't really for the company, usually everybody wanted to make sure everybody was happy, but there were, you know, heated debate. 
And it was interesting that the first three days, there wasn't, people were more consensus oriented, like, okay, well, if the majority or, you know, think that this is investable, fine, that's okay with us. You know, it's like there was less of that kind of fight for the reason why they, you know, either wanted, felt it could be investable or not. And, uh, and for me also, I felt like there was, there was not this connection. There was like spice missing within the jury. And, um, and so by the middle, I thought, you know, gotta heat up this jury. And, uh, but you see, because of different cultures and you can't, uh, feel body language, you see also, um, people are less, uh, uh, there to kind of let people know exactly yeah they hide behind the screen or they they're being quiet and so forth but but uh my question was also about not just the pandemic and how the communication was delivered Mm -hmm. but about the events in the united states so let's talk about the the the, your personal feelings about what's going on um Um, you know in terms of protest in terms in terms of the um um the American government and the European government not seeing eye to eye, obviously. Um, this uh, yes, okay. The, hor- the, the horrible um, um, events that took place in Minneapolis, obviously, and we're seeing these events are now um, being noticed by um, many, many worldwide, including Paris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not just noticed; people are actively. Mm-hmm. protesting they're actively getting involved with anti-racism movement and so forth how what are your thoughts about america what are your thoughts about our country and how it is being perceived by the europeans how it is being being perceived by the european entrepreneurs if before you know you and i had these conversations every almost everybody in conferences in their pitches you know we want to go to america we want to go to explore the new markets and so forth and now there's just such a tremendous amount of disappointment with many folks um, that our government, our local uh, police force, and others, um, you know, it, it just it, it's 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 a, it's a combination of emotions. It's a combination of frustrations on all sides, but obviously. Um, the fact that racism is the center of attention, right? Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on that, on that? Yes, is that actually for Europeans, particularly the, the French, uh, with uh, the situation happening now and, uh, and uh, you know, the whole racism and, and, and what happened with the, with the police force, et cetera, was that uh, a lot of the the French actually felt very supportive and were, and were actually happy that uh, citizens uh, were wanting to, are wanting to make change that are not staying quiet because particularly for France, uh, they like to strike and they like to, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, revolutionize. <laughs> And protest and yeah, of they're very I mean, big protests. We took it. We took it from French, right? From the yes, French. exactly. So for them, they're like, yes, okay, the U.S. is uh, this is a good thing. We can we can hear their voice, and uh, and that's why actually in in France on the on the blackout Tuesday, there they were manifesting and um, having uh, uh, protests in, um, in in Paris also. A bit pretty kind of, well, as I said, when the Parisians strike or protest, it's all the way or not, or not, or not do it. (laughs) So it was pretty lively. But um, uh, we all, uh, you know, even on the social media, a lot of us, you know, did the black uh, screens and to show support, you know, to the U.S. side. And uh, in France, uh, was also showing that uh, they're supporting the the U.S. on um, on these issues. Uh, because do you think it's gonna? Do you think um, these types of events? Do you think they're going to impact somehow the ability or the desire to do business in the United States? Do you think it's gonna? Is there any type of impact 
uh, that will be on that desire or that will? Or on the contrary, do you think that <clears throat> that French are going to be even more, especially French entrepreneurs and startups and scale-ups, do you think they'll be even more interested in getting involved, <clears throat> getting more involved and getting more uh, you know, business um, dealings with the United States? Yes, because actually, um, you know, from negative comes positive. And uh, um, from this whole um, situation, it, it, it's bringing a light to the, to the fact uh, that it's important about diversity, the importance of, uh, you know, it's not just, uh, uh, for example, even uh, pro-woman, uh, you know, uh, promoting women entrepreneurs, women on boards, et cetera, but it's diversity. Because now also, actually, there is more, you know, um, you have more women sitting on boards. Uh, there's more mainstreaming going on and stuff. But uh, now it's like the next step. What's the next step is diversity. You know, people of different color, of, of uh, different origin, of different religion, uh, uh, di um, different race. So uh, this is like a positive uh, moving forward. And so for entrepreneurs, they like the fact that they see that there's a voice and uh, change. And, uh, and even if uh, it can be unsettling to some people, uh, it's a moving forward. You know, the, the same as having to adapt to the, the COVID. So I see it more as, uh, as that it's just another stepping stone, you know, uh, to moving forward, advancing. You know, making making change. I think, for example, uh, uh, as much as a lot has changed, you know, for years, uh, the uh, I think sometimes there's been things that have still settled on the surface. You know, that hasn't. Some things haven't really been dug down deep to uh, to pinpoint certain issues that are still there. And I think this kind of brings out again that uh, everything's not completely settled. The, you know, there are still issues and that uh, we need to uh, take a little bit more seriously the fact that uh, some things might seem fine on the surface, but actually there's still uh, some things from underneath that uh, need change. Uh, let's talk a little bit about innovation. Uh, innovation is such a, an interesting phenomenon on one hand, everybody's talking about it and everybody is, you know, either doing it or pretending to be doing <laughs> uh, digital transformation, innovation, all those big buzzwords, right? And of course, we're seeing that our government, United States government, um, sometimes we're being perceived as being innovative and sometimes we tend to go back in time and um, continue to. Uh, do questionable things when it comes to ecology, when it comes to environment, when it comes to innovative solutions and, uh, you know, driving our economy, driving our infrastructure forward, right? I mean, for example, I personally feel that um, with all the talk three or four years ago by the current administration about infrastructure and how important it is to build the infrastructure and so forth, not much has been done. Mm -hmm. it, certainly the private sector has been doing quite a bit right? Especially in space mm -hmm. and, and so forth. But nothing has been done. Not much has been done with the government uh, subsidies or support in smart cities. Not much has been done in, in terms of um, uh, environment uh, to promote even more of the innovation in it within the environment uh, and so forth. Uh, so I have personal feelings about that. But is United States... Um, being perceived as innovative is, is, is us still the Mecca for innovation or do you think that Europe and Asia and Africa and, and Middle East and other geographies, do you think that they could potentially claim the, um, the leadership role or at least excel dramatically, uh, against the drop of, um, or against the, the backdrop of, uh, of the United States not necessarily doing what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, in the United States, in innovation is that 
as much as, for example, in Europe or the Middle East and Africa, I work in all the different regions with international organizations, uh, um, on you know SMEs with the government, academia, all the way to policymakers and the ministries, is that uh, U.S. will always be known to have the strong ecosystem, meaning that. Europe has a lot of innovation, and actually, usually we say that the French uh, engineering students coming from Polytechnique, uh, what they what they do in uh, what they can do in, um, for example, uh, they can, for example, in engineering, you take an American engineer and what they do in eight hours, like a, a French engineer can do in two, but. Uh, uh, but the ecosystem in Europe and in, in Africa that to support the system, that uh, that whole platform, uh, does not enable uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the scale-up stage, to achieve uh, uh, specific uh, um, development or goals. Uh, as you in the states, you will still have a lot of Europeans wanting to go to the states to develop and continue. Uh, um, uh, their entrepreneurship uh, adventures. Now, when we say innovate, you see that's what's interesting too is the fact that sometimes when we think, okay, uh, who's more innovative or not, is that a lot of the times I always like when we hear, uh, if it's not broken, why fix it? And the thing is, uh, as you were saying too, that now with uh, the pandemic and all these changes that uh, everybody's thinking, okay, what's a new thing we can innovate and we have to think of new things, etc. is that a lot of the time it's about innovating and marketing. Um, it's about uh, the fact that uh, if something's already working, sometimes it's just innovating within the marketing of how to adapt. And, uh, and sometimes that's where you see a lot of entrepreneurs that, uh, that mix that. Uh, uh, that innovation is not just, you know, coming with a new product. Um, innovation also in, in marketing. Uh, for example, in, in France, there was, we invested in a company called Michel Augustin. I don't know if you know in the... No, I have not the, heard of them, no. They're kind of like a high-end uh, cookies and uh, um, uh, cookies and crackers and and chips, but very high end. And actually, when they came to our uh, network, many angels were saying, well, in France, especially, there's already these well-known brands, etc. It's not like their cookies are out of this world or not. But I remember telling them that, no, Michel Augustin, it's uh, their marketing. They, 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 Michel and Augustin, the two you know, chefs, uh, the, the way they... Um, advertise themselves, the way the marketing is on their products, uh, the way they position themselves, uh, is, is, that is what people buy into. So some angel investors had invested in it. Others felt that, no, it's not innovative enough. And in fact, they were innovative in the marketing because they are very well known in France now. Uh, they're all over the high end, the supermarkets, etc. Uh, I mean, they, they ended up scaling up, uh, faster and farther than most of these angels thought. And it was uh, because they, because of that innovation in the marketing. Uh, they, it wasn't that they were inventing something particularly new. But uh, uh, that's where, you know, when we say on the innovate side, I agree with you on the fact that, like with the U.S., Europeans are rather surprised that on the transportation, when they see the trains system and... Uh, <laughs> They yeah, we can like, talk about that for hours and yeah. how I feel and you feel about the train system <laughs> in the United States, right? <laughs> you know. um, but let's let's talk a little bit more about you personally. And, uh, you know, being busy with sports, entrepreneurs all over the world, and being involved in a variety of um, European Union and global government organizations, how much time does it leave for being a mom? And how do yes. you balance all of this? Mm-hmm. Well, that's why, you know, I always say to my mentees, because I mentor a lot, you know, and have founded quite a few mentoring programs, is that uh, it is, you are capable of, of balancing and being pretty busy. Uh, it just depends how you do it. And the thing was that with my children, 
is that uh, when I share the two activities with them, is that uh, I make sure that when they're doing their horse riding, I put my horse riding around their time. So we both are brushing the horses together and, you know, spending the time at the stables uh, with the, with the fencing, with the competitions. Uh, I have my little son doing, being my little coach also because he's actually number three in France. Uh, oh, wow. Fencing. Yes. And, uh, and he's been very supportive. He's, he's actually been the one that's helped get my, me the, my two bronze medals when I felt like giving up in the middle of those competitions, because everything I would tell him, you realize that, uh, your children are very good listeners. So he would end so up what, being like what, a mentor. What did he say? How did he inspire you? What did he say? Well, it's um, when I was telling you about one of my, for example, low moments in the fencing where I felt that I wasn't getting the touches. I was being trained by a, a, a coach who trained the French Olympic team and who trains the trainers all over the world. So I was thinking, if I'm not getting the touches, why do I have this great coach? And uh, I, I don't seem to be moving forward, uh, you know. And, uh, and I remember coming, telling the coach that, look, I think that maybe it's the first time in my life I have to say to myself that uh, uh, no matter how much I want it, if you just don't have the talent for it or not, you shouldn't push it. Sometimes you need to know to just say that, okay, maybe it's not for me. You tried hard and you did everything, but it, you just don't have a talent for it which is very antithesis of, you know, what I say to entrepreneurs and stuff. But it was at that moment, you know, that I really doubted for the first time everything I say to entrepreneurs, to my mentors, mentees. And, uh, and my coach actually, it was a prideful moment for him because he was thinking, well, if you feel there's a better coach, you know, then, and I said, no, you are the best coach and, and it's not happening. So um, I remember coming uh, home and my son was there and he saw tears streaming down my face because I really felt like uh, for the first time uh, that uh, I wasn't accomplishing what I wanted and, uh, and also feeling that everything I say isn't true. <laughs> and, my, and so my son was like, what's wrong? And I said, look, I'm going to be putting my fleuret away. I said, but I'm not giving up. I'm just realizing that uh, sometimes I said, like you, you get a medal and one time you may not get it, but then you get the medal again. So you're in the game. I said with me, I'm just not getting those touches. Uh, I'm not improving no matter how hard I try. So maybe it's just not my sport, but, uh, so it's not giving up. It's just that I might, my, I just don't have the talent for it. So he said, what are you saying? You've been progressing. Uh, you just started, you know, I, it's amazing what you're doing already. And, um, and I said, no, that's very nice, but, uh, it's not the same. And he said, uh, well, mom, you said, feel fast, feel forward, feel uh, early. He goes, uh, so what is this? And I said, no, it's different. I told you I'm not, uh, I'm not giving up. And then um, he said. You were uh, trying to come up with some excuses and he was catching you on, yes, on some of the yes. things that you were promoting, right? Exactly. And then uh, he said, uh, but hey, mom, you said that if you're motivated enough, you know, uh, you could achieve anything. And he says, and what do you always say, mom? And I, and um, I said, what, what do I always say? He goes, impossible. There's always the possible impossible. That's why it's written. I am possible. So I was looking at him thinking I just wanted to strangle the little guy because he, I was like, what did I create here? <laughs> he was ending up mentoring me. So then he said, look, mama, I think you need to go to bed and we'll talk about it in the morning. <laughs> And, um, and after that, you know, I had told my coach that since I'm not someone who gives up, I will go to the competition and, uh, finish what I started. But I really think that, uh, and he, and actually my coach gave me a floret the next, the next day. Um, and I told him, well, thank you. That's very nice. But, uh, like I told you, I'm finishing what I started, et cetera. And he says, no, he goes, take it. You'll see. And I was, you know, using, I was thinking, gosh, uh, it's very precise, kind of strange. And I said, well, it looks the same, but I feel like it's more precise. He goes, yes, because it's a Marie-Jean and it's what they, what most of the fencers use in the Olympics. And he says, because it doesn't waver. And I said, oh, and it was funny how psychologically I was thinking I had my magic floret. So I was all of a sudden, I felt like, oh, I have an advantage. <laughs> a competitive advantage in my you know in my competitions because it's not the olympics it's regional so and uh and so i continued training and the thing was i think which was interesting too was that it was the you know from my son you know who was uh you know gave me that extra kind of reminder 
was that when I went to the, the competition that I was supposed to finish what I started and, and then put aside the, the foil, was that I think because I wasn't so uptight about how much I had to have that touch, I just wanted to show the coach that, look, I'm doing everything you say, and this is just how it is. And, and I was kind of curious how this, you know, this foil, the fluoret, uh, was going to work in this competition. And just because I felt I had that magic fluoret and, um, uh, and I wanted to show the coach that, fine, you know, I'll do what you say, I was not as, uh, you know, uptight uh, and uh, stiff about every touch. And all of a sudden, I was getting a touch here, a touch there. Uh, and, and at the end of the competition, I got the bronze medal. So my coach said so. Congratulations. Thank you. You're going to end it? And I said, uh, well, let's see what happens next. <laughs> Which that, you see, then reinforced the fact that, um, of course, I thanked my son because I said that was one of my low moments where I, I actually doubted everything I say to myself and to entrepreneurs. But then I needed that because for the, my entrepreneurs and those that I coach, I am 10 times more believing in the fact that if you really want what you want, uh, you will get it. You know, I've told people that, you know, when some say that, yeah, but, you know, I was a pianist. I just wasn't a natural, you know, natural at it. Uh, I, that's why I stopped. Cedra, I said, well, if you stop something, it doesn't necessarily mean it was because you gave up. Some, it, it, you have to be passionate about it, too. So if you're really passionate about it, you'll, you'll find any way to, to have yourself go to the next level, et cetera. And that's why I say to entrepreneurs, like on the sport and the, and the, um, the sport uh, and their companies and things. It's just about the fact that it's the same. Uh, when you're passionate about what you do, uh, you're ready to, when there's those low, low times, you're ready to, you know, plunge with it, but then you're ready to enjoy the, the high times too. And, um, but you have to do what you love, uh, not just do it to do it. And that's what gives you that extra, you know, mindset and energy to, you know, to get over the difficult times. So endure, fail early, fail often, um, get involved maybe with some sports <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that should help based on what you're saying and listen to your kids. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Audra, thank you so much for being with us. You're it welcome. was a pleasure seeing you again, even though it's just Zoom. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping we'll meet again very, very soon. I'm hoping to be in Europe soon as well. Oh, yes, definitely. I always enjoy seeing you uh, at the European Business Angel Network uh, yes. event. Yeah, yeah it was always, it's always a pleasure. And uh, we'd love to have you as our guest again uh, in you. the near future. So uh, we do appreciate you coming. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much, Alex.